Well, our text this evening, providentially, is Lord's Day 12, which speaks of Christ's office, threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, and our calling in response. And that fits very well with uh, that idea of publicly professing our faith. But before we get to that, I'd like to read with you Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. It's not a terribly long chapter, but it's a beautiful chapter in uh, reminding us of the significance of Jesus' calling when he came to minister in the flesh. What did he come to do? What did he come to accomplish? When he began his public ministry, it was by standing in the synagogue, or sitting in the synagogue, and reading this text, and then saying, this has now been accomplished among you. He recognized that this chapter really laid out the calling of the Christ. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels... For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Amen. Lord's Day 12, as it leads us through a consideration of what it is that we're confessing when we confess the Apostles' Creed asks, why is Jesus, why is the Son of God called Christ, meaning anointed? And the answer is because He has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God for our deliverance. Our only high priest who has set us free by the one sacrifice of His body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father and our eternal King 
who governs us by His Word and Spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom He has won for us. But why then are you called a Christian? Because by faith I am a member of Christ. And so I share in His anointing. I am anointed to confess His name, to present myself to Him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for all eternity. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, the issue behind Lord's Day 12 is really an issue that confused me for a good number of years in my childhood. And that is, what is the significance of Christ? Jesus, clearly, is the Savior's first name. That was clear from the words of the angel that he spoke to Joseph in Matthew 1. But among us, in our age, the second name you typically hear is either a person's middle name, often spoken by an unhappy mother, trying to get their child's attention, or a person's last name, Douglas Barnes. And as a child, I wondered, how does that work with Jesus? Was Joseph's second name also Christ? Or was Jesus Christ the equivalent of Douglas Bryan? And why do we not hear in Scripture, and that's what really confused me, why do we not hear in Scripture Jesus being addressed by both names? In fact, we almost never hear him being addressed directly as Christ. And that was perplexing to me as a child. Not perplexing enough to actually seek out the answer, but time and again it would kind of rise and make me curious. Well, Lord's Day 12 tackles that question head on by showing us that Christ is less a name than a title. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, Because both Messiah and Christ mean anointed one. Now kids, what does it mean to be anointed? When you anoint someone or something, you put upon them a liquid of some sort. So if you burned yourself, you might anoint yourself with a salve that would promote healing. Or if you just pulled some fresh bread out of the oven, you might anoint it with melted butter to keep it from drying out and enhance its flavor. In the Old Testament, leaders of God's people were anointed at the start of their service, at their ordination. And that anointing had several purposes. For one thing, it visibly demonstrated that this person has been set apart for the service to which he has been called. They're not just to do this you know, little job that's equivalent to some common job. No, this is a special job for which they've been set apart and commissioned. But it was more than that because oil was being poured upon their heads and oil was recognized as something that was refreshing. Remember, this is a hot, arid climate. If you had been working outside in the sun, you're baked all day long. If you really wanted to Pamper yourself, you would anoint your head with oil and refresh the the pores that had been baked. With that oil being poured out upon the individual's head, it was indicative of the refreshing 
life-giving power of the Holy Spirit whom God promised to the leaders of His people. So that's what anointing was in terms of the Old Testament. And in being designated as the anointed one, as the Christ, Jesus was being recognized as the one called, as the one set apart, as the one equipped to do the work that uniquely God had promised that his peop- to His people that it would be done. That's what it means that we call Him the Christ. It's not His last name, it's not His middle name, it's His title that indicates why He came and what He would accomplish. And so what we consider as we uh, look at these truths this evening is that God the Son is confessed as the Christ to indicate that He is the perfect servant of God. Christians confess God the Son as the perfect servant of God. But that begs the question, which office was He ordained to fulfill? Because, of course, an anointing indicates that someone is entering an office, a former calling, as a leader of God's people. But in the Old Testament, there were several offices. So which one was Jesus anointed to fulfill? And as we saw when we read through Lord's Day 12, He wasn't anointed to enter into an office. He was anointed to enter into and to fulfill all of them. Because, you see, He came not merely as a priest or as a king or as a prophet. He came to fulfill the office of man. And man, as we'll see, was meant to fulfill all of those offices. So Jesus came to complete what we couldn't, to do what we were unable to do. He embraced for us the fullness of humanity's office. And so that's the first point that we see here, how Jesus came to embrace the fullness of humanity's office. Now before we look at what that involves, when exactly was He anointed and ordained? Our catechism says he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed. But when did that happen? In a sense, it happened in eternity. Because there's never been a time when Jesus was not, right? John 1 makes it very clear that there's nothing that has been made that he did not make. Which means there was never a time when he was not. So he has always served in these ways that he was ordained and anointed to serve. But there was a time during his time on earth when he was specifically anointed and ordained, and that was at his baptism. On that day, he came to John the Baptist. Now, John was baptizing people for the repentance of sin, and so he protested that Jesus should not be baptized. He should be baptized by Jesus. But Jesus said, this is what needs to happen right now. And when he was baptized, the Son descended into the water. The Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. You see, in the Old Testament, when a man was ordained into office, he was anointed with oil that symbolized the coming of the Holy Spirit. He was anointed with a symbol. That Jesus was anointed with the reality to which the symbol pointed. Not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit Himself. Demonstrating the fullness of the power with which He came. And immediately afterward, He went out into the desert to do the work that He was called to do. To take on the, the temptations and the trials 
that we failed to uphold. Where we failed, he immediately succeeded by the power of God. And then he came back and he began gathering his disciples to himself. And he began proclaiming the kingdom of God which had now come among men. He began doing the work that would fulfill all of these offices. But it began with his ordination and anointment in his baptism. And therefore because he had entered into that office of full humanity, he became first of all our chief prophet. Now a prophet, kids when you think of a prophet, do you think of someone who tells the future? That's really only a small part of their job. The prophets of the Old Testament, they did sometimes tell what was going to happen, right? Like in Isaiah, when God told before the, the exile had really happened, told how it would end. But more often, the prophets simply spoke the will of God to his people. They reminded the people who God is and what he had done and what he had promised and how they were called to respond to God. So the prophet is the one who reveals God and his works and his promises and his calling to the people. And mankind was meant to be prophets. We were meant from the very beginning to reveal God and His character and His will, not only by our words, but by our very being. In Genesis 1 verse 27, we read, God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female, He created them. And our calling from that very moment was to display the image of God, the reality of God, the character of God to all the world. The way we interacted with one another and with the creation was to reveal the character of God. The way that we spoke was to point one another and all the world unto God. The way we cared for the creation was to show the perfect care of the Creator for the world. All that we did, all that we said, all that we desired was meant to reveal God. But then Adam sinned. And it ruined our ability to serve as prophets. Because our character became corrupt our desires became twisted. We could no longer serve as prophets. And yet God promised that He would restore mankind to that office. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, the Lord assured through Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Since man was no longer able to accurately reveal God and His will to, the peop- to one another, God sent His Son to be the perfect prophet. And we heard in, Psalm, or in Isaiah 61 how prophetic the calling of Christ would be. The Messiah would be anointed by the Spirit of God to preach good news to the poor and to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and release for those bound in prison. To declare both the favor of the Lord and the day of God's vengeance. Messiah is the one who would come to tell the world about the misery into which they were born and the comfort that God had in store for them and the joy of turning to and serving the Lord. This would stand at the very heart of the calling of the Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled that calling perfectly. Luke 4 records how Jesus preached the first time in Nazareth, his hometown. There in the synagogue of Nazareth, he took up this scroll. He read the first two verses. And then he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. 
That's the first thing he wanted the people to know about his ministry, about his office. That he came as the prophet. Because the calling of the prophet was front and center in the calling of Messiah. The calling to proclaim God's will. Had to happen, had to be restored before the Messiah could overcome the sins of the people and then reign over them as king because the people had to know what he was doing and why he was doing it. They had to understand the significance of it all so that they could respond with faith. So the prophetic calling comes first. And Jesus was the perfect prophet. Therefore, we have access to the counsel of God that we need for eternal life. Jesus is the one who taught with authority that left all the people of God in awe. Jesus is the one who came and corrected the understanding of the people which had gone astray as they mixed the word of God with the traditions of men. Jesus, in fact, was the one by whom the prophets had spoken their word. He sent the the Spirit to the prophets, guided them in every word that they spoke. And so now he was able to explain the significance of what the prophets had said and of what that meant to the people. Everything Jesus did, this is what we need to remember, everything Jesus did was meant to reveal God with an absolute perfection. We know God, as Jesus himself said, we know God simply because Jesus has revealed him to us. But he didn't come only as a prophet, he came also as our high priest. Just as a prophet represents God before men, the priest is meant to represent men before God. Priests bring sacrifices that are intended to reconcile sinful men with the holy God. They pray to God, asking the Lord to meet the needs of the people. They express gratitude to God on behalf of men. Again, we were created, we were designed with a priestly purpose in mind. Men were meant to stand between God and the creation. The whole world was meant to serve as a sacrifice to God, a sacrifice of praise. And man, Adam and his offspring, were to make that happen. But then man sinned. Sin exiled us from God. It cut us off. It broke our relationship with God. No longer could we enter into God's presence on behalf of the creation because we were cut off. We were separated. So God promised that He would send the Anointed One, the Christ, as our priest. Now all of the priests in the history of Israel, they pointed forward to Him. But they didn't accomplish it. They couldn't bring the sacrifice that was necessary because the sacrifice that was necessary to atone for man's sin would have to come from the perfect man and that wasn't them. They had to bring a sacrifice that would last and since none of their sacrifices would last they had to keep offering them over and over and over again. And they had to bring that sacrifice, the true priest would have to bring that sacrifice into the presence of God, but because they were sinful men, they couldn't enter into the fullness of God's presence. They could only enter into a model. And the true priest would intercede endlessly for God's people, but because they were sinful men, they all died and had to be replaced by another, who had to be replaced by another, who had to be replaced by another. In other words, these old priests of Israel, they all pointed forward to the priestly work that needed to happen, but they couldn't do it themselves until Jesus came. When Jesus came, He fulfilled it. Isaiah 61, 
It recalls that the people of God were named priests of God, which meant that Christ must reconcile us to God so that we could be restored to that priestly purpose. He had to reconcile those whom sin cut off. The priestly people would wear the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness, but that means that we had to be covered by that robe of righteousness that belonged to another, and that was his job. To be the righteous one who would cover us. To attain the salvation that would deliver us. That was his calling as the anointed priest, and that's what he did. He came and lived the perfect life so that we, being joined to him by faith, would have that righteousness imputed to us. He came and devoted himself wholeheartedly and without reservation to God so that we, being joined to him by faith, would be counted as the holy ones. He suffered and died under the curse of God to the extent that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's what we deserved. And he served as our, not only our priest, but our perfect sacrifice, bringing himself into the presence of God to suffer what what our sins deserved, and then having accomplished that perfect sacrifice, having lived that perfect life, he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes day by day by day for the people whom he represents, which is us. And that's what Jesus did. He served in a way that the priests of old Israel could only imagine serving. There was not the smallest flaw in his service. And that means that we, looking to him, can be perfectly reconciled to God. But not only was he the perfect prophet and priest, he was also the perfect king, is also the perfect king. Man, again, was made to rule over the creation. Back there in Genesis 1, we read that God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Have dominion. Rule over them on God's behalf. God made the world. Man was made to to form and build and develop the world that God made, exercising the, the kingly authority of God. But then we sinned. And we became unsuitable. Instead of acting as kings on God's behalf, We acted according to our twisted desires. Instead of using all of these amazing resources in a way that would glorify God and serve Him and highlight Him. No, no. We used them all for our own selfish, sinful, wicked ends. We needed someone who would restore us to that kingly role and that was Jesus. God promised in 2 Samuel 7, He promised David... That he would raise up one of David's sons to be the great king who would build a house for God, who would establish God's people in peace, who would cause the throne of God to to last forever. It's It's this son whom all the prophets foretold. He's the one, according to Micah 4, who would draw people of every nation together into one people and would establish peace for them. He's the one, according to Ezekiel 37, who would feed and provide for and protect God's people always. He's the one, according to Psalm 110, who would rule over all things from heaven for the sake of God's people. And that's what Jesus did. 
He came to be the king proclaimed in Isaiah 61. The one who would lead God's people in rebuilding what through sin was destroyed. Verse 4. The one who would draw strangers to know and to serve God as adopted sons. Verse 5. The one who would cause the Gentiles to look at the servants of God and call them blessed. Verse 9. The one who faithfully restores the worship of those who turn to God. Verse 11. All of that Jesus came to fulfill and he did. And so when all was complete, he was welcomed into the presence of God. All authority in heaven and on earth having been entrusted to him. All power and judgment coming under his rule. Where he orchestrates all things for the good of his people until he comes back. Until that day, until he gathers everyone before his throne of judgment. He orchestrates everything according to the good of his people and his kingdom. He governs us by His Word and Spirit. He guards us from those who would destroy us. He protects us from those who would lead us astray. He gives us assurance that no one can snatch us from His hand. Jesus is the King we need to protect and rule us for our good. In fact, the Christ, the Anointed One, is the fullness of what we were meant to be who draws us back into that role of what we were meant to be. We needed... The prophetic, the priestly, and the kingly work of Christ. So he came and fulfilled it all. And that leads us into the other half of what this Lord's Day shows us. Having embraced for us the fullness of humanity's office, he now empowers us to embrace our full humanity. Remember, when we come to faith in Christ, we experience a true spiritual unity with him. It's amazing how in the book of Hebrews, time and again, it calls us partakers of Christ. That's beautiful. By faith we are joined to Him so that God looks on us and He sees the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. That's not just a legal relationship. That's a real union. And through that union, He empowers us. He guides us. He uses us. Not just to do His will, but to enter back in to that office that in sin we had forsaken. Understanding this is essential to understanding our calling. Because we are not called to earn our standing with God. Nor are we called to be new Adams living in some provisional uh, relationship of probation. Where we have to you know, see if we can be good enough. No. Jesus did everything necessary to restore us to the relationship with God. To the calling before God that we were meant to inhabit. And because of what he accomplished, we all share his anointing. And we're able to resume the calling that mankind was created to embrace. And that means that we too, with Jesus, are called to be prophets. Like Jesus, we are anointed by the Spirit of God to preach good news to the poor and healing for the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty for the captives and release for those enslaved. To declare the, the time of God's favor and also the coming of His judgment. We proclaim not just the kingdom of God, but the Savior who sits at its head. We have the privilege. Lucas came and stood before us and acknowledged his confidence in the word of God, his belief in his need for Christ, his, his faith in the Lord. When he did that, he was indicating, as we all must indicate, his intention to stand before mankind giving a reason for the hope that is within him, right? And that 
That involves telling people, and we all think, oh, I don't know if I can do that. You can. It involves telling people, I'm not worthy to stand before God. I'm a sinner. If I were to stand before Him based on what I have done, He would have no choice but to consign me to hell forever. But God God sent His Son to suffer that for me. And because of what He suffered, because of what He endured, I can go and stand before God clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I can stand before God confident that He's going to look on me and say, You are one of my holy ones. How amazing is that? That's our prophetic calling. To tell all who are willing to hear. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that every one of us is called to stand in a pulpit. Or that we're called necessarily to stand on a sidewalk. Some of us are. But others are called to build relationships. All of us really are called to build relationships. That will lead us to those opportunities where we can explain that to our friends. To our neighbors. To our co-workers. Certainly to our children and to our grandchildren telling them where our hope lies and why it lies there, explaining to them who God is and what He's done and how glorious He is, and not just with regard to salvation, also explaining that He's the one who made all of this, that He's the one who uses this all to His glory, that He's the one who one day will restore it all to the perfection in which it was made so that there will be a time when there is no more sickness, there is no more cancer, there is no more brokenness, there is no more war, there is no more weeping at the hurt and the harm and pointing them to the glory that is coming so that they too will want to know truly, perfectly that comfort that we have. Our call to worship this evening In Psalm 22, the the verse before it is this vow. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. That's our prophetic calling, folks. To stand wherever God puts us, whether in the midst of the congregation or in the midst of an unbelieving world. And to tell them, let me tell you about the God who made you. The God who designed you to bring glory to His name. That is our prophetic calling. What you did this evening, Lucas, that was the start of it. That was a little piece. We're all called to take up that little piece. But then we're called to go on from there and prophetically proclaim Him before all the world. We also have a priestly calling in Christ. Not the calling to sacrifice bulls and goats on an altar. Jesus offered the sacrifice of blood that is sufficient for all time. There is no other uh, shedding of blood as an offering. Now, now as those who stand in the presence of God because of what Jesus has done, because of His priestly work, now our calling is to offer ourselves. Romans 12 as I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That means that we, well, as we saw recently in First Peter, the time 
that is past is sufficient for walking in the ways of the flesh and walking in the ways of the world. Now we are to live for God. Now we are to live in a way that explicitly serves Him. Now we are to take up all of the gifts and the opportunities that He's given us, serving in a way that will bring honor and glory to Him. That's our calling. We are the sacrifice. We sacrifice to Him every time we gather together in worship. We sacrifice to Him every time we choose to put aside our desire to sit there and just veg so that we can go and serve our neighbor who is in need. We sacrifice to Him when we sit with old folks who are lonely at the home and we read to them or we allow them to reminisce. We sacrifice to the Lord. When we go and sit at the Crisis Pregnancy Center and we give hope to someone who feels hopeless, we sacrifice to Him. When we go to that young person who feels like they've made an absolute wreck of things and we tell them you haven't, you have, but Christ overcomes all of that. We sacrifice to Him when we sit with that couple that feels like they've made such a wreck of their marriage there's no way to salvage it and we tell them, no, 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 (laughs) been there, done that and God can overcome it. And we walk that path of restoration with them. Whatever the service God sets before you, that is the priestly sacrifice that you are called to give to Him. And the only way you can do it is in Christ. But in Christ, that sacrifice is a pleasing aroma to God. It delights Him. It it glorifies Him. We're called to be prophets in Christ and priests in Christ and also kings in Christ. Our our Lord's Day 12 tells us we are to strive with a good conscience against sin and the devil in this life. You know, before we came to Christ, sin held free reign over us. We weren't as bad as we could possibly be, but only because of selfish desires. We didn't want to suffer the consequence of being as bad as we could be. But then, when we trusted in the Lord, the chains fell off. We were no longer bound to sin. Instead of only being able to sin, we now had the choice to not sin. And we were given the strength by the Holy Spirit. Part of our kingly work is exercising dominion in our own lives. Young people, you are called to exercise dominion. To exercise the kingly office in putting to death the sin within you. And in cultivating the new life in Christ. That is the first and most important kingly task that Christ sets before you. And you can do it because you're joined to Christ. You can do it because you're joined to the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth over all things physical, spiritual and otherwise. Right? Satan's temptations are no match to the one to whom you've been joined. So you have the ability to exercise that kingly authority that leads you out of defilement, out of darkness, into the light of holiness. But we don't stop there. We were created to exercise dominion throughout the world and we are recreated in Christ to do the same. Not because this world... We're going to turn it into the new heavens and the new earth. No, Christ is going to do that at the end of time. But he calls us, even today, to begin exercising that dominion because in doing so, we're being prepared to exercise dominion in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. And that means that wherever you see the works of Satan, you are called to oppose them. 
in one another. When we see each other going down that wrong path, coming alongside and with love, but with firmness, calling one another to a better way, to a life of holiness, to the life that is fitting for those who are sons and daughters of God. In our families, when we see one another going astray, calling each other back, urging each other to do better, but not just there. We don't live in a commune. We don't live in a little colony. No, we live in the midst of a broken world, but we were, we were left here for the sake of that world. Jesus said, you're a light on a hill. You don't take that light and cover it over with a bushel. No, you, you put it on a stand where it can be seen. That means that we need to be out in the community expressing to our neighbors what is the way that is right and good versus the way that is evil and condemnable. We are the ones who have to go like Nathan going to David to the magistrate pointing out this way is the way of sin from which you need to repent. This way is the way of righteousness that will be pleasing to God. We need to explain that to our neighbor. Showing our neighbor this is the way that is right. This is the way that will please God and if you go the other way you can be sure of God's curse. Will that save them? No, of course not. But we should strive to show them the way that is right and true so that they can learn to repent, so that they can desire something better, so that they can seek after that hope that is within you. And maybe they will and praise the Lord for that, but even if they don't, we should strive to do that and to promote that which glorifies God as an exercise of dominion. That means that we need to be politically active. That means that if God's given you the opportunity and the gifts, then you need to run for office or campaign for others. But it doesn't, it's not just a political thing. If the gifts and the opportunity God has given you means running a business, then run a business for the glory of God, exercising dominion in that realm. If the opportunities and the gifts God has given you involve serving as a counselor, then serve as a counselor in a way that points people to Christ who's able to overcome their sin and their self-destruction. Wherever the Lord leads us, we are called in Christ to exercise dominion. And when we do that, beloved, when we do that, it is never wasted labor. Sometimes it feels that way because nobody sees it. Right? You're out there in your garden pulling weeds. Woo, exercising dominion. Nobody's going to notice this. But God will. Even those hidden acts of dominion, much as those hidden acts of sacrifice and those very quiet, private proclamations of prophetic truth, God's there. Your Father who sees in secret will delight in you doing what you were created and redeemed to do. Left to ourselves, we will make a mockery of all that man was made to do and to be. But Jesus came as the Christ, the anointed one, to be the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, who restores us to God and restores us into those offices unto God's glory. Professing your faith 
That's one demonstration that you're gaining the maturity to do that. But it's one small part. Now the calling comes to take up that prophetic and that priestly and that kingly office in all of life. All of us are called to that. So let's pray that God would give us the wisdom and the strength and the commitment to do it. And then let's open our eyes and ask him today at this moment, how would you have me to serve as a prophet, as a priest, as a king, united to Christ and indwelt by his spirit? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have given us gifts beyond measure. Far beyond what we could ever begin to deserve. Enable us, we pray, to use those gifts in a way that are pleasing to you and that will bring glory to your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In response, let's acknowledge in song that it's Jesus who has done all of this. And that's our joy, that's our delight. As we sing together, number 384, number 384.